Before we start, let me just say, that we're here to bear witness that there is no God but one, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, the God of the Bible. The head of this congregation Our sin offering, our coming king, the Savior Messiah of all of us who are born again. That was a that was an awesome moment of worship. Val, thank you for leading us. I had a I had a super encouraging time with the Lord this morning. I knew I knew I wanted to talk about uh, the Day of Atonement today, but the my time with the Lord kind of had an unexpected blessing first before I even got into it and um, it was kind of on the on the topic of obedience and so I want to start with that a little bit start with um, some of the things that the Lord just reminded me of and, and encouraged me with this morning and I just pray Father God that that my words would honor you first and foremost that these words would bear witness to your reality, your goodness, your sovereignty. I give you th thanks and praise for who you are, for what you mean to everyone in this room, for what you've done for my family, And I pray that your word would come forth today like a divine hammer. And that your saints would have ears to hear and that we would be sanctified by your truth. I pray a guard on my mouth that only your truth would come forth as has already been prayed by, by Val and by Diane. May the hearts of your saints be soft and prepared for a seed to come forth and may it bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone find please 1 John chapter 5 and read out loud verses 2 and 3. We want to kind of answer the question here as we prepare to discuss the Day of Atonement and the purpose for it. We want to first talk about the broader category of 
obedience in general. Why do we obey? Why do we keep God's commandments? Why do we walk in God's ways? Why do we align with his prescriptions? Why do we recognize his specific appointed times? One of the reasons we obey, we can read about in 1 John 5, verses 2 and 3, when someone has it. By this we know that we love the, we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Okay, so what's the answer to number one? Obedience is how we what? Love God. This is a difficult exam, I realize. Hopefully everyone's going to pass. Okay, so far you're, you're, you're at 50% correct. Obedience is how we love God. Okay, second one, same book. Just a little bit to the left, 1 John chapter 2. Verses 3 through 6, if someone wouldn't mind reading that. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Good. Read number two again, Andrew, real loud. Just verse two. I'm sorry, verse three. Okay, so answer number two. Obedience is how we what? No God. You guys all passed. 100%. Way to go. Obedience is how we love God, the God of the Bible. Obedience is how we know God, the God of the Bible. And that seems, hopefully, perhaps by now, to be obvious to us. It may, hopefully for us, be second nature and just very clear to us that the way we love an invisible God is by keeping his commandments. And the way that we know an invisible God is by walking in his ways. This is the story of scripture. These are the themes of scripture. These are included in every story of scripture. The entire larger redemptive story of God, everything declares and reveals these two truths. We just went to two very specific verses that lay it out incredibly plainly. The way we love God is keep his commandments. The way we know God is keep his commandments. And the reason I feel like this was brought to, re-brought to my attention this morning and, and why I was um, so encouraged by it this morning is because it's, it's, a, it's the pattern that my family has experienced and, and for any of your families who have endeavored to walk in God's ways and to 
learn and align our homes with his commandments and to do that um, without compromise. Whenever we come to this time of year, a lot of opposition comes to, to the keeping of God's ways. And, um, and it reveals, it continues to reveal to me the level of, I'm going to use the word bewitchment, the level of bewitch, bewitchment in the, in the church that the body of Christ is a victim of that causes the body of Christ to not keep God's commandments, to not walk in his ways, to not align with things like the Moedim. Uh, this time it always just kind of becomes ultra obvious to me, likely, likely to you guys too. Um, on two fronts, um, the primary one being um, when, when people find out or hear that we, for example, are getting ready to recognize the Day of Atonement, um, you will very often hear people say, um, we don't have to do that anymore, or, or something along those lines, if they even know what it is. It might be, what is that, or why do you do that, or, or whatever, but very often it's, we don't have to do that anymore. And, and if, you, um, if you really want to know the, the heart of the body of Christ regarding his commandments, all you really have to do is listen to or listen for what questions do people ask regarding God's commandments. And at least in my experience, the dominant question that the body of Christ asks regarding God's commandments, it's usually, well, which one do I not have to do anymore? Which ones no longer apply to me? Which ones were um, done away with at this point? Like that is a very common question. And it's a, and it's a, um, it's a reflection of a heart that has been shaped by a partial gospel that is destination-centered and focused, and the, the heart of the question, which ones do I have to do and which ones do I not have to do, are kind of an outflow of, in order to get in. Which ones do I have to do to get in, or which ones sh am I required to do because I'm in? It's, it's that sort of line of questioning and it and it ultimately has very little grounding in these two truths if we ever ask the question which commandments do i no longer have to do do you see how that flies in the face of what the scripture says why we obey in an ugly way honestly if the Bible teaches that the way we love God is by keeping his commandments, and the Bible teaches the way that we know God is by keeping his commandments, then at one point, at what point is the question, which one do I no longer have to do? At what point is that relevant? You hear what I'm saying? And I'm giving the negative side first. Okay, because the negative side is real. And the negative side is the result of an all-out assault by the enemy of God and the enemy of all of God's people 
uh, that's come in the form of a, a full-on attack on the commandments of God, a full-on attack on the truth of God, a full-on attack on the word of God. Right? Why would the enemy not want us to know or keep God's commandments? Because the enemy does not want us to love and know the God of the Bible. He wants that worship. He wants that position. Because he can't have it, his job is to... His, his effort is to, is to come against that. So what better deception, what better um, manipulation, what better witchcraft or bewitchment than to teach in the, in the church to the body of Christ that the commandments of God that no longer apply to the body of Christ are any ones that come before this point or any ones that are taught in this way or anyone that have anything to do with this area of life. Right? Do you notice that in, in these verses there is no distinction about which commandments of God he's talking about? Why? Because the God of the Bible never changes. Right? So to, so to ever ask the question, which ones no longer apply, or which one do I no longer have to do, it just, it just goes against the very purpose of his commandments anyways. It's how we know him. Right? What is Jesus referred to in John chapter 1? The Word. The Word made flesh. Right? What is he referred to in Revelation chapter 19? Word of God. His name is Word of God. Right? Jesus refers to himself as the truth. Right? He, he refers to the Word of God as what? The truth. Right? The laws of God are referred to as the what? Truth. So, so if Jesus is the word and Jesus is the truth and the word is the word and the word is the truth, what part is no longer for us? What part is done away with? What part is old covenant or old testament or obsolete or does this make sense? So, so, so the opposite is where I was encouraged by the Lord this morning. And, and the opposite starts with these things. When we love God, the, the, the outflow of that love and the manifestation of that love is to want more of him. Right? Like, isn't that how love is constantly played out with our spouses, with our kids, with our, even our, you know, our, our hobbies or our favorite pastimes? What, when you love something, you want more of it. When you want something, every part of it you want to know and you want to experience and you want to continue to experience. You want to, you grab at it, you reach for it, you work for it. Well, this is, this is how we operate regarding the God of the Bible. To, to know God more is to get into his ways. It's to walk in his ways. It's to desire his ways. It's to crave anything we can get our hands on about this invisible God. So there is no point. There's nothing in our hearts if you're authentically born again and the Spirit of God lives inside of you. There should be nothing inside of you that is asking the question, which one do I not have to do anymore? That just flies in the face of everything God is about. The exact opposite should be a, 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 the, the desire of our heart. Teach me more. Show me more. I want more. It's Moses coming off the mountain and saying, God, teach me your ways that I might know you more. Right? It's, this is how we come to know an invisible God, by, by walking in his ways. That's what First John chapter 2 
by this you know that you know God. Listen to me, saints. This is the best way to know if you know God. Do you desire to walk in his ways? It is, is it a blessing to you to keep God's commandments? Is it is a desire of yours to constantly know more, constantly ask more, constantly have more revealed? Why? So that we can win theological debates? No, so that we can know God, so that we can love God. It's such an unbelievable gift to have our eyes open to the things of God, to the ways of God, to the plan of God, right? To the judgments of God. About every area of life, it is a gift to be given those things. And the only response that truly reflects authentically being born again and being led by the Spirit of God is to desire those things, to go after those things. Never to ask the question or to get into a debate about which ones no longer are for us. It's just the wrong question because of the wrong heart and often, unfortunately, because the body of Christ uh, is taught that the ways of God have been done away with. The gospel presentation itself has been adjusted so much that much of the conversions that are sitting in churches today are not even really converted. And if you are unconverted, it is absolutely going to be your question, which one is no longer for us? Which one do I no longer have to do? Give me only the ones that I got to do. Okay, so here's Here's the single point that I want to make, and then I'm, I'll get off my bandwagon here, my soapbox. As long as you are 100% crystal clear that absolutely no one is justified by works of the law, absolutely no one can earn their salvation by works of the law. We do not obey God to be saved. We do not obey God to be better than anybody else. We do not obey God because he'll make us rich and famous. Absolutely none of those things are the truth. We are justified solely by the finished work of Christ on the cross and being covered by the blood of the true unblemished lamb. But once you have that truth of the gospel firmly in place, once that is firmly in place, you never, ever, ever have to fear obedience to God's ways in any way, regardless of what anybody says. Anybody that tries to convince you that you no longer have to do that, they do not understand these biblical truths. Once you know that you are saved by the blood of Christ alone, that you have been ransomed by the death of the true unblemished lamb, once you are firmly in agreement with that truth, you never again have to ask the question, which ones are no longer for us? They're all good. They're all perfect. They're all holy, to use specific biblical terms that rep represent or, or describe the law. They are all the truth. Jesus did every one of them. Jesus' disciples did every one of them. The early church did every one of them. And so will we. Why? Because that's how we love God. And that's how we come to know God. Amen?
So regarding the Day of Atonement, um, or any of the, the holy days, let's just keep that in mind over the next couple of weeks. Okay, because anyone catches word that you are going to go celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, you're going to confront this. I can promise you that. You're going to confront some way and some, somehow, some way, someone saying, either you do not have to do that, or why do you do that, or what is that about? And, and the answer is simple. We love God. So we want every aspect of God, everything that God offers us, every possible way for us to connect and enjoy and align with the God of the Bible. We just want all of it. Isn't that a beautiful answer? Versus some kind of BS theological debate. Don't ever get into BS theological debates. They are an absolute waste of time. Okay? If you love God, you want everything he offers. There is nothing that he offers that we would ask the question, do I really have to do that? Think about it from an adoption standpoint. All right? If you are absolute destitute broke, you have no life you have no access to life. You have no access to any goodness. You have no access to anything but poverty and misery and death. And some unbelievable, wealthy, powerful, perfect father adopts you into his home would it make any sense to you to get into his home and then, and then say, all right, yeah, I want to I sit at your table, but which, what, of, what of your food that you're serving do I not have to eat? I get to be a part of your business. I get to be a part of the master's business. Awesome. I want to I be a part of them. But what part of the master's business do I not have to do? You see, the question just doesn't make sense. When you frame it within the realities of what God has invited us into. When you know the God of the Bible, you don't ask the question, which one do I not have to do? You only ask, what else do you have for me? What else can you show me? What else can you give me? What else can I do to align with you? The holy days are so perfect for that. They are gifts given to us to align with the Father. Gifts given to us to open our eyes to the goodness of his ways the plan that we are all find ourselves in. And the deception of the body of Christ can be so easily seen when, when, you know, over the next coming months, you will find such a huge percentage of the body of Christ clinging to Christmas. Right, as a completely unbiblical, absolutely no truth, counterfeit, pagan holiday. With a lie of placing Christ's birthday in the middle of it. For the whole church to carry on the celebration of a pagan holiday. Absolutely unmentioned in Scripture. And yet what is mentioned in Scripture, the Feast of Tabernacles, how much of the body of Christ will align with it? A death grip 
on a pagan holiday and the ignoring of a biblical appointed time. That is the level of bewitchment in the church. So praise God for having eyes opened. Amen. Praise God for that. The holy days align us with the Father. They give the true saints of God more access to the invisible God, maker of heaven and earth. Hallelujah for that. What a gift. What a blessing. I pray that you all feel as grateful as I feel to have a revelation of these things that God offers us are the ways that we take hold of him and that he takes hold of us. Amen for that. I'm so grateful. So last week we talked about the holy days being um, practical ways for us to know and align with the God of the Bible who is constantly working things towards a, a finale to his plan. They give us incredible teaching tools for the fullness of that plan, the fullness of the gospel invitation, the fullness of the larger redemptive story in creation that takes into account not just aspect of the larger redemptive story that is necessary for God's plan to be revealed. It gives us these incredible practical prescriptions for engaging these appointed times, engaging them how, how God told us to, tells us to, invites us to. And by our simply obeying him, walking in his ways, sticking what's, what's written, doing Bible things in Bible ways at Bible times, we are changed. We're sanctified. Further conformed into the image of Christ. Further purified and made ready as the bride. Right? And, and in some cases, it gives us um, opportunities to envision and anticipate the things that are yet to come and perhaps make adjustments, make changes, add things, subtract things in anticipation for what's to come. And that, especially as we talked about last week, that's the best way to to recognize why we, why we celebrate the fall appointed times, the times that represent things that are yet to come. Right? These things have all happened. Passover, first fruits, and Pentecost. Passover was the cross. First fruits was the resurrection. Pentecost was the spirit given. All those things have already happened. Major, singular, 100% critical events that had to happen within history for the larger redemptive plan of God to be played out. Well, there are still three more major, singular, massive events that have to take place for the larger redemptive story of plan to be played out. So the, these days remind us that those times are yet to come and hopefully help us to prepare for them. And this is really what the Day of Atonement is, is all about. So, so the fall days, um, 
start with the trumpets. That's what we um, gathered for last time we were together. The blowing of the trumpet is to further align the body of Christ with the purposes and, and plan of God in such detail that the Father wants us to know what it's going to sound like. Isn't that beautiful? So awesome. I had such a wonderful experience at the gathering for Feast of Trumpets. Hearing those trumpets blowing together was really awesome for me. Hearing that sound over and over again as, as we declared the prophetic passages returning to Christ's return, powerful. And what the Spirit was teaching me was that sound is to, is to do a number of things. One, it sounds the, the gathering of the body of Christ. It, it's used in praise and worship. It's used to, to head into battle. And it's maybe primarily used to, to be a warning that the king is coming. Our king is coming. With a right robe dipped in blood. And eyes of fire and a sword proceeding from his mouth. And that stone, not cut by human hands, is coming to crush every enemy of God. That's an awesome thing to look forward to if you're saved. That's a terrifying thing to think about if you're not. And that's why the Feast of Trumpets is so critical. And the Feast of Trumpets, as seen within a larger redemptive story, helps us to understand the, the events that followed the Feast of Trumpets. Day of Atonement being the next one. We're going to look not super specifically at what does it mean, what does it teach us, what does it show us that the Feast of Trumpets falls between, I mean, I'm sorry, that the Day of Atonement falls between trumpets and tabernacles. Tabernacles represents the culmination of God's plan, the restoration of all things, the new heaven and the new earth, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the beginning of the age to come, and primarily the tabernacling once again of God with man. It's the, it's the hope of the saints of God. And tabernacle is a celebration of that hope. An eight-day feast. Hallelujah. I can't wait. Seven with an eighth. Okay, so... Um, so uh, the, the, what the Lord gave me to, to chat about regarding Day of Atonement today kind of was a surprise to me, so um, I guess that shouldn't be a surprise. But um, Day of Atonement takes place on the 10th day of the seventh month. Okay, so today's the eighth day of the seventh month, so that means Monday is the Day of Atonement. Okay, so um, I don't have a lot to share with you regarding the details of the prescription for the day. Um, it is not a feast, uh, but there is a um, holy convocation commanded. All right, so super quickly, I'm just going to say um, we're going to open up this space from 10 to noon on Monday. It will not be a sermon or a teaching of any kind. It's just going to be an open house with 
some some reflective music playing. Um, I will open with a prayer, um, and that will sort of begin the Holy Convocation, but it will be just an open house setting from then on for two hours. Come and, come and go as people please. Um, okay, everyone clear about that? All right, so um, what I'm gonna do is share with you some of the scriptures regarding Day of Atonement and give you the encouragement to study these on your own. You got the rest of today's Sabbath, you got Sunday, and then sundown on Sunday starts the Day of Atonement. So there's a few days here to kind of dig into this stuff, and that's kind of what I think I'm supposed to encourage you is read these texts, read these scriptures, and, and um, specifically the, the prescription the, the Word gives for how the day is to be engaged. All right, so those scriptures are these three right here. Exodus 37 through 10 is the first mention of Day of Atonement, the single day that the high priest is to go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the sins. This is specifically to Aaron as the first high priest. Then Leviticus 16 gives um, very specific prescription for the priestly duties during the Day of Atonement. And then, of course, ex oh, I'm sorry. This is Leviticus. 23 gives the commandment in verses 26 through 32 of the Day of Atonement. A Sabbath day, a day to afflict or to deny yourself, and a holy convocation. Okay, so I'm going to leave these to you guys to study, either up, up to or specifically on the Day of Atonement. Everyone clear about that? Okay, now let's look at... Um, Turn with me in your Bible to Revelation 19. Everyone see in the heading to verse 11 in, in Revelation 19, Christ on the white horse? That's... That's the coming of the king, right? That's the, that's the trumpet blast. That's the stone not cut by human hands. That's the conqueror coming to crush. That is what trumpets signifies, warns of, celebrates, congregates us, so on and so forth. Revelation 19. We see that when the, when the king comes, if you look at kind of the heading of the of the next paragraph, first he's described, and then it shares a little bit about what he's gonna to come to do. And the heading says what? The beast and his armies defeated. Everyone read that? Okay, so this is the, the um, using kind of apocalyptic language, this is the prophecy of how when the king comes, he's coming to clean house. Then we see, so that, that time frame and those activities are, are, are basically what trumpets foreshadow and prophesy and, and prepare us for. The next of the uh, Moedim is the Day of Atonement, which comes how many days after trumpets? Ten. Why? Because trumpets is on the first day of the seventh month. Day of Atonement is on the tenth day of the seventh month. So on a yearly calendar, 10 days represent trumpets and atonement. In the word of God, I believe that that time frame is represented by what? A thousand years. 
Okay, so the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth is essentially what takes place between trumpets and atonements, those events that take place during this time we have minimal detail about. We see, and let's just read the um, kind of the paragraph headings. We see that Satan is bound for a thousand years. Everyone reading that? So as a part of Christ's return and the establishment of his sovereignty, absolute sovereignty, absolute power and kingdom on earth, we see Satan is bound for a thousand years so he can no longer deceive the nations. Then we see just under that, what's the paragraph heading? The saints reign with Christ for a thousand years. Everyone reading that? So this is the first resurrection. Those who have been found in Christ are resurrected with him and participate with him in the ruling and reigning and establishment of his kingdom during that th thousand year reign. And then sometime at the end of it, we see um, Satan released and then ultimately destroyed finally. Everyone see that satanic rebellion crushed? We're not getting into the details. We're just reading the paragraph headings. And then what's the last paragraph heading? The great white throne of judgment. Everyone see that? So that is basically as it relates to the Day of Atonement from a timeline standpoint. The Day of Atonement is sort of encapsulated in, in those four paragraphs, those four happenings. Satan bound, the establishment of Christ's kingdom and the reigning of Christ with his saints on the earth. Satan ultimately destroyed and then the great white throne of judgment. Immediately following the great white throne of judgment, we have what? The beginning of the age to come. Right? Revelation 21 and 22 is the beginning of the age to come. Eternity. Starting. What tabernacles is to foreshadow and, and have the saints of God practicing, preparing for that time? Okay, so here's the point that I want to make. The... Coming of Christ at trumpets, we're given a couple of paragraphs of detail about. Right? The thousand year reign leading up to and including the great white throne of judgment, we're given a little bit of detail about. About four paragraphs about a page or so on my Bible, probably about the same on yours. The age to come, the tabernacling of God with man, we are given some details about that in Revelation 21 and 22, but it's not a ton, right? And I'll be the first to say and the first to admit that regarding each of these three events, the coming of Christ as the conquering king, the establishment of his kingdom and thousand-year reign, the ultimate uh, defeat and, and punishment of Satan, the great white throne of judgment, and then the, the, the um, full manifestation of the age to come and the will of God culminating. I'll be the first to admit, I don't know much about those things. I don't have a great deal of clarity I basically have what you guys have. I have some paragraphs that I can read that are truth, we know. We have some details about 
God's victories, but we don't have a ton to study. And I say that because um, we've even had, uh, coming into these fall holy days, we've had some, um, some people share that there's, that there's apprehension and fear as we think about the second coming of Christ. There's apprehension and fear as, as we read about the thousand-year reign and the resurrection of the dead and, and Satan being bound for a thousand years. And there's, there's fear and apprehension about the great white throne. We, we can recognize that these are God's plan. right? We can recognize that he wants us to be aware of his plan and aware of some of the events that must take place for his plan to come to pass, there is to be a general understanding of the, of the victory of God and, and the defeat of evil and the establishment of perfection. But there's, there's, a, there's a lot of uncertainty. And, and I want to um, give permission to be um, even slightly fearful of that. Because that was that was one of the things that we were um, that we were shared is is there's kind of some fear and there's almost some shame associated with that fear or, or guilt associated with that fear, and and I just and my my um, I really felt like my heart was kind of broken because that's such a natural response and there should be no shame or guilt associated with that. It's like a, a good father promising his kids something that they've not yet experienced there it's okay it's okay to not know how to feel about something that we don't really know much about and that we have a general idea but it's pretty it's pretty radical and pretty out there and and we just it's brand new it's okay to have a little bit of that's that's kind of scary i think that should be a part of um, our honest, as we study these things and as we walk these days out, knowing that they are going to happen and we will be in the midst of it. It's okay to recognize that we don't have a lot of details about it. I don't even have a lot of comfort in preaching about it because I just don't know what it's all going to look like. And, and And to me, this is the... This is kind of the, the comfort that the Lord gave me this morning, or, or really more, more so the clarity the Lord gave me this morning. It was really, look at the amount of text that I gave you regarding these events that are coming. What are we talking about here? Like four pages in our Bible. Did God accidentally leave some things out that we're supposed to know? Nope. Did he, did he short us to keep us in the dark, to keep us guessing or? No, he, what he gave us is perfect. What he gave us is exactly what we need. And it was almost like God saying, all right, I didn't give you a lot because, because you don't need to know a lot. You need to know it's coming. You need to be aware that I win. And then you need to stick with what's written. Right, so I think all that is to say we can get lost, I think, in 
looking at the, the fall holy days and looking at how we engage these and why we engage these and what they are prophesying and foretelling and, and get overwhelmed and especially get overwhelmed with fear. And I felt like the Lord was just telling me, don't, don't do that. Stick with what's written and recognize literally almost kind of from a volume standpoint, look at what's really important. All right, so, so, here's, so here's where the morning took an interesting twist for me. When we look at the Day of Atonement as a prescribed, appointed time, a time that we're to recognize every year and follow the prescription for every year, the time that this specific Moedim represents is a time of judgment, right? The, the theme essentially of all of chapter 20 in Revelation is that God's gonna judge. The God of the Bible, especially as his plan begins to culminate, is coming to judge, right? Satan coming as the coming king is coming to establish that judgment, right? So if we, if we just look from an from a elevated perspective on chapter 20 of the scriptures, we can recognize that it's about judgment. And therefore, since the Day of Atonement represents this time, and obviously the name itself gives us this, it's, this is a time to, to be aware of and to anticipate the judgment of God. Okay? So if this is about judgment, something that um, the Lord kind of revealed to me last year that was, that was really um, the, the result of a, of a certain verse in the single paragraph about the great white throne of judgment that really stood out to me. In, in, the, in the verse about the great white throne of judgment, in uh, verse 11... It says, when I saw a great, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Everyone read that? This is Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. The paragraph regarding the great white throne of judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. Everyone read that? Let me complete this, this text real quick. And there was found no place for them. For who? Heaven and earth. That's an interesting way for this text to start, don't you think? I'll continue verse 12. Then I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by which the things were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his work. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, this is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. So this is the final 
judgment of the creator God of the earth and everyone that's on it and has ever been on it. And the, the text um, that, that the Lord really highlighted to me last year was that first verse um, that said heaven and earth, or earth and heaven fled away. And, and he, he went on to, um, to connect a few dots regarding this judgment piece that are really, really important. And it's, um, it was first and foremost fundamentally about how when God judges at that time, as he sits on the great white throne of judgment, his judgment, judgment at that time will be perfect. His, his judgment will be fair and his judgment will be perfect for who? Everybody that's ever lived, right? So for that to be the case, there has got to be a law that everyone is judged by. That makes sense? It's really, really important to get your head around that. Why? Because, because if that's not the case, if there is not a standard by which everyone is judged, a fair standard by which everyone is judged, then judgment cannot be fair. Right? If, if it's just a floating, morphing, ever-changing idea of goodness or morality or righteousness, then, then how does a single judge judge someone from a thousand years ago or 500 years ago or 50 years ago or 50 years from now? Right? If, 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 there is a, if it's a moving target... From a law standpoint, judgment cannot be fair. So, so this idea and in, in the, um, the reality that in the, that in the culmination of this age, God is going to judge everyone that has ever lived, uh, the Lord began to open my eyes that there's got to be a single standard. And so how he did that was using this this first text, and it, and it was um, the beginning of a cover-to-cover -cover connection that I thought was really, really cool. And it begins with, we'll go through this quick, I promise I'm almost done. Go first to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Someone please read verse 15. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Moses, this is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that they may they have committed. Matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay. That's a pretty simple law. A perfect law. By God's design, by God's permission, and by God's sovereignty. For a matter to be established, it must be established by two or three witnesses. Everyone reading that? Okay. Now let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. How does the book of Deuteronomy from a context standpoint end? Anyone remember? 
What is the book of Deuteronomy? It's the second giving of the law. Why is it necessary? Because they didn't get it the first time. And quite literally, um, we're dealing now with the second generation because they didn't get it the first time. So the whole book of Deuteronomy is really Moses retelling the story and resharing the law and resharing God's expectations um, to the second generation. And so if you kind of just look at the, the um, chapter headings again, let's say in verse uh, 27... I'm sorry, chapter 27 of Deuteronomy. You'll see that chapter is headed with the title, I suppose, The Law Inscribed on Stones. So Moses is getting ready to re-highlight the Ten Commandments, if you will. Then if you look at chapter 28, he goes very specifically into blessings that are based on what? Obedience. Okay, this is Moses sharing with the second generation children of God the ways of God, the laws of God, the commandments of God, the statutes and judgments and precepts, the way in which God works, the way in which God deals with his own. Right? So he, so he unpacks in chapter 28... Great detail about the blessings that come with obedience and what else? Curses that come with disobedience. Why? Because this is how God works and this is how God operates and this is how God deals with his own. So you have a number of passages about the disobedience and curses that come with it. Then what do you see in verse 29? A covenant renewed. Why did it need to be renewed? Because we're dealing with the second generation. Has the covenant changed? He's just retelling it. He's restating how God works. And in this time, he basically is reiterating over and over and over that God expects obedience. That God's laws are critical to being his people. Why? Because obedience is how we love God. Obedience is how we know God. Nothing changes. It is a theme from cover to cover throughout the scriptures. Moses hammers it home at the end of Deuteronomy with these three chapters. Then, in the middle of chapter 30, after the covenant is reestablished, the clarity has been hammered home. He transitions to the choice and the choice is such a beautiful chapter deuteronomy chapter 30 is such a beautiful chapter uh, that the body of christ would do well to meditate on on a regular basis because starting in verse 11 god makes it very very clear because he's given us his ways our life is exactly what we choose it to be what a powerful thing for God to reveal. So someone please read for us out loud, real loud, starting in verse 11 of chapter 30. Keep going, I'm sorry. We're going to go through, um, through verse 19, ma'am. 
Okay. So prior to God laying down the realities of this choice, what does he remove? Any excuse. Before laying out this choice, being our choice, he, he dismisses any excuse. Beautiful. Powerful. All excuses removed. Continue, ma'am. Okay, so Deuteronomy 19.15, God's ways establish what? For any matter to be established, it must be established by what? Two or three witnesses. And it's only when we have an understanding that that is God's way, that is God's law, that verse 19 in this text makes sense. Because God does what in verse 19? I call heaven and earth as witnesses today. Right? If you don't know God's ways, that sentence is kind of confusing. Why does God have to call a witness? Because God's establishing something. Right? And what is, the estab what is he establishing? Blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. Life in obedience, death in disobedience. Goodness in Loving the one true God and not so goodness in loving little g-gods. Okay, so he, in the, in the culmination of this entire revelation of how the God of the Bible works and deals with his own, he puts in, in the middle of it this witness piece in the, in the culmination of it where he says, you got to choose, you got to make a choice. And the witnesses very specifically are what? Heaven and earth. Okay, now let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Once again, if you don't know the word, if you don't know God's ways, if you don't know that Jesus is the word and perfectly aligns with the ways and did nothing of his own but only came to do the master's business, he makes a statement in in. The, in chapter 5 of Matthew here, that would be a little bit confusing. When you have clarity and when you have the truth, it makes perfect sense. Someone pl please read verses 17, 18, and 19, please. Chapter 5.
Okay, so so we we've unpacked this text a lot. It's very very clear what what Christ is saying here. Where where does his statements connect back to Deuteronomy chapter thirty? What's the connection? The witnesses, right? Isn't it interesting that Jesus says that until heaven and earth pass away, every jot and every tittle by the law of the law is in place. Why would he say that? Because it's exactly what God said. Right? Why do, why do we know that God said that the law is in place until heaven and earth pass away? Because he placed heaven and earth as what? Witnesses. Witnesses. What did God place as witnesses to the duration of the time the law is in place? Two things that cannot be removed. Except by God. Except by God. Right? He doesn't say until the cross. He doesn't say until the church. He doesn't say until Peter or Paul. He says until heaven and earth pass away. Those are the witnesses. So doesn't it make sense that Jesus would say that until heaven and earth pass away? He didn't say until the cross. He didn't say until the church, or he didn't say until Peter or Paul. He said until heaven and earth pass away, because, he, because he's in perfect alignment with the Father. And the Father has called these witnesses to be in place until their job is over with. Okay? Until their job is over with. When is their job over with? Go back to Revelation chapter 20. Isn't it amazing how these small details that the Spirit of God inspired the authors to include all of a sudden connect these dots for us? What happens at the beginning of chapter, or in the middle of, at the end, sorry, at the end of chapter 20, starting in verse 11? Then I saw the great white throne of judgment. This is the very end of this age. The very end of this age is the great white throne of judgment. Everyone recognize that? Christ's earthly reign, his thousand-year reign, is a part of this age. That time ends at the great white throne of judgment. And what happens when, the, when, when him who sits on that throne shows up at that time? Earth and heaven fled away. Earth and heaven fled away. Why? Because their purpose was over. So how long is the law in place till... This moment. And why is that so critical? What is getting ready to happen at this moment? Everyone is going to be judged. The only way for this moment to be fair for everyone that's ever lived is for the same law to be the standard. The same law that was established before Sinai, by the way, because Abraham walked in it. Before Abraham, by the way, because Noah walked in it, because God's ways are eternal and his laws are truth. And none of it ever goes away or fades or falls or is irrelevant or is culturally not for us. Any other excuse. It's all in place until heaven and earth pass away. So look at what happens immediately following the great white throne of judgment, right? Revelation 21 is the first verse of the age to come, right? The first, verse of, the first 
verse of the age to come is Revelation 21. And what's it say in verse 1? Someone read it. Isn't it amazing how perfect the Father's plan is? How perfect every detail is? So what was that whole exercise for? A simple, simple point. As we look at the Day of Atonement and as we look at the Fall Holy Days in general, it can, get re, it can be really easy to get overwhelmed and lost. And lost specifically in things that we don't really have clarity on and don't really have all the details on and don't really have great revelation on it can, get e it can be easy to get overwhelmed by it. It can be easy to get fearful about it. Here's what I feel like the Lord told me. The details regarding that time, it's four paragraphs. What does the rest of the Bible teach us? What is the theme of the other 66 books and word after word after word and paragraph after paragraph after paragraph and book after book after book. What's the theme? Obedience. What's the theme? Love God, know God. Why do we spend so much time worrying about and thinking about and, and debating about the stuff that we get four paragraphs regarding when we've got... So much that tells us the simple message of God wants to be known, God wants to be loved, God wants to be our God, and he wants us to be his people. The Day of Atonement should remind us that we are going to stand before the Father, and when we do, he's going to line us up to the word. He's going to line us up to the truth. He's going to line us up to the commandments. And based on that, we're going to be given rewards. Hallelujah. We're going to be given responsibilities and roles in the age to come. There's going to be incredible benefit on that day to those who have, according to the word, loved God by keeping his commandments and aligning with his ways, his statutes, his judgments, and his precepts our whole lives. And so this day for me is to, is to re remember that I'm going to stand before the Father. It's to remember that he is coming back to judge all things. It's to remember that he is a faithful and fair judge that is going to judge everyone by the same standard. And he has, by God's spirit, by his permission, and by his incredible grace given me eyes to see that the more that I walk in his ways, the more I love him, the more I know him, and the more that moment that the Day of Atonement is prophesying and leading us towards is not to be feared. It's to be worked towards. Amen. Look at the whole rest of the Bible. Stick with what's written. 
take a day and remember Revelation chapter 20. It's not to be feared, it's to be worked towards. And working towards it means sticking with what's written even as it relates to the Day of Atonement itself. So that's all I'm going to leave you with. Read these. Set aside sundown on Sunday through sundown on Monday and allow the Spirit to lead. Amen? Father, we praise you for the goodness of your ways. We praise you that you are the God that constantly has extended your hand towards us, constantly has made a way for us to engage and participate and understand what a what an unbelievable thing. How grateful we are, God, that you would count us that you would reach out to us. That you would invite us. I pray that every heart that hears this would be opened to the miracle of how you constantly offer yourself to us. To all of the ways. Lord, I pray that you continue to open our eyes to the, to the secret ways, to the subtle ways, to the profound ways, to the hidden ways, and to the obvious ways. That you extend yourself to us. Give us eyes to see. Give us a heart to respond, to reach back, to say yes, to respond. I pray for a response by your saints. Guide us by your spirit as we approach this time, this day. Give us spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding, spiritual revelation. May every one of us have a profound, forever life-changing day of atonement this year. I pray and ask for it, that your perfect will be done in each of our lives, in each of our homes, in each of our families. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So just to repeat, for our Holy Convocation on this coming Monday, there will be an open house time of reflection here at the space from 10 to noon. That's the only time we will gather. Uh, if you can't make that for any reason, have a Holy Convocation with your family. And, um, and the Prescription for the Day of Atonement is quite um, specific regarding the recognition of 
the day starting at sunset the night before. It's, it's, the, it's the one that really goes out of its way to say, remember this starts at sunset the night before. So that's Sunday evening, tomorrow evening at sunset is when this starts. And uh, I'll leave you with that. Have a